going to be starting with a quote from Sebastian Younger. He's an American journalist who, for the most part, does a lot with war correspondence. And this is what he says. It should be uh, up behind me. It says, adversity often leads people to depend more and more on one another. And that closeness can produce a kind of nostalgia for the hard times that even civilians are susceptible to. After World War II, many Londoners claimed to miss the exciting and perilous days of the Blitz. I wouldn't mind having an evening like that, say once a week. Ordinarily, there's no excitement, one man commented, to mass observation about the air raids. And the war that is missed doesn't even have to be a shooting war. Someone else said, I am a survivor of the AIDS epidemic, an American man wrote in 2014 on the comment board of an online lecture about war. Now that AIDS is no longer a death sentence, I must admit that I miss those days of extreme brotherhood, which led to deep emotions and understandings that are far above anything I have felt since the plague years. What people miss, presumably, isn't danger or loss, but the unity that these things often engender. As we could see, and as many of us know, adversity has a tendency to birth unity. Many of us who are old enough to remember 9-11, I have some over there that aren't, that's why I bring that up, remember the days following 9-11, the days immediately following 9-11, and how as a country we were very unified. It would be odd to see a vehicle driving down the road without an American flag attached to it, and we as a people, as an American people, were seen as one. I remember right after that being deployed to the Middle East, and one of the first spots that I got to go to was the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, there was a former Special Forces Sergeant Major who was there, and we'll just say that he was the morale officer, for lack of a, a better term. And uh, the beach that was there was called Herb's Beach. That was the gentleman's first name, and he had a gymnasium. And inside the gymnasium, it said, we thrive on adversity. Typically, something that we try to avoid is the very thing that we thrive on, and it's the very thing that brings forth unity. And as we look at our text today, we're going to observe that the church at Philippi was experiencing adversity and suffering. And Paul's encouragement to them is to put away anything that is disrupting unity so that they can function as one body and continue to proclaim the gospel of Christ. If they are to persevere in their suffering, they are not only going to have to depend on God, but they are also going to have to depend on one another. So as we go back to the text, we're going to look at Paul's plea in verses 27 and 28. Again, it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. If you remember from the last couple of weeks as we started this series, we saw that as Paul gave the introduction to this letter, he pretty much focused on his ministry and what he was going through and what he was dealing with. But now we're shifting gears as we turn to verse 27, and Paul no longer is concentrating on what he's going through. He's now transitioning to his expectation of the Philippian church. 
Paul intimates in verse 26 that his intent is to visit them again. But in the event that he is unable to visit them physically, he wants to hear that they are living a life or a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you remember from the intro, Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian church from prison. And that's either in Ephesus or in Rome. So since he is uncertain whether he'll be released or whether he'll remain imprisoned or whether he'll become a martyr for the faith, Paul tells the Philippian church, regardless of whether I'm able to visit you again or not, this is what I want to hear, no matter what the Philippians are dealing with. When we look at verses 28 through 30, we'll observe that the Philippian church was dealing with opponents outside the church who opposed the message that Jesus is king. But as we look at the surrounding context or the book of Philippians as a whole, we observe that there is some internal conflict within the church as well. And this is probably Paul's plea for them to become unified and become one body. In chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, prior to the Christ hymn, Paul says this, Do nothing from rivalry and conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Staying in chapter 2, but fast forwarding to verses 12 through 16, it says, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And then in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, we observe that there was some discord between Euodia and Syntyche when Paul says the following, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So as we look at these other verses, there appears to be at least some type of issue with unity within the church. There's grumbling, there's questioning, there's people who are putting themselves above other people. And of course, these things are affecting the unity within the body. To combat this, Paul encourages the saints within the church to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. The Greek word here, polyueste, can denote a manner of life or conduct, but a better translation is one that Bible scholar Sylvie uses in his commentary. He says, regardless of my circumstances, what really matters is that you behave as citizens of heaven. So a better translation would be, not having a manner of life, but living your lives as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's one thing to be called a citizen of heaven, just like it's one thing to name a sermon series, Citizen of Heaven, which I got to give you props for the 
sermon series title. But this phrase has major implications. So what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? We observed what it means to be a citizen of heaven somewhat implicitly in some of the verses that I read earlier to show some of the potential issues that were occurring in the Philippian church. In the beginning of chapter 2, as Paul exhorts the church not to do anything out of rivalry or conceit or to look after their own interests, he then transitions into the Christ hymn and encourages the church to have this mind among them, which is yours in Christ Jesus, calling the people of God to be a people who exhibit humility just as their Savior did. Prior to Paul exhorting the church in verse 14 to do all things without grumbling or questioning, in verse 12, Paul calls on the church to obey and work out their salvation with fear and trembling. In verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2, he reminds the church that in the midst of a crooked generation, they shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Now, as we return to the text before us today, Paul explicitly gives the church three things that they should be doing as citizens of heaven. And it's again found in verses 27 and 28. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are one, standing firm in one spirit. Two, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And thirdly, not frightened in anything by your opponents. If we are to be citizens of heaven, we need to stand firm in one spirit. We need to strive by stri uh, stri uh, stride side by side rather with one mind, and we cannot be frightened by our opponents. The church is to stand firm in one spirit. So standing firm in one spirit, what does that mean? Well, scholars disagree as to whether the reference here is to the human spirit or to the Holy Spirit. One scholar, Hellman, holds that the reference is to the human spirit, and he posits that since the word is combined with stand firm here in the text, Paul is using the phrase stand firm in the spirit to signify that the church in Philippi is to be firmly committed in conviction or belief. Since this was a colony that consisted of veterans, Paul's purpose here might be to portray the image of soldiers who determinedly refused to leave their posts irrespective of how severely the battle rages. And I couldn't help to think, but for all my former military folks, your first general order, you will not leave your post till you are properly relieved. And this is the mindset that these veterans would have had. Combined with the next phrase to strive side by side with one mind, Paul is encouraging the church to have unity of purpose. So irregardless of whether it is the human spirit that Paul is talking about, or the Holy Spirit, which is what we're going to get into next, Paul's intent is to make sure that the church at Philippi has a unity of purpose. And we're going to see what that purpose is also in a little bit. Other scholars like Fee and Fowl believe that the reference here is not to the human spirit, but to the Holy Spirit. Fee's argument for the term pneuma, which means spirit, Referring to the Holy Spirit as opposed to the human spirit is as follows. 
the word pneuma is not used to refer to oneness. Whenever Paul uses the verb stand firm followed by the preposition in, the prepositional phrase is invariably locative, meaning that it defines the sphere in which one is to stand firm. The regular usage works perfectly with one spirit by whom they have all been incorporated into Christ. And as we look ahead to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul again references participation in the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit. Paul uses the same language that he just used here also in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, 1 through 4. Why don't we turn there? If you have a Bible, it should only be at most maybe two pages back, and this is what it says. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. So that should sound somewhat familiar to what we have just read. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And we see here then the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, that the reference is to the Holy Spirit, not to the people of Ephesus being one spirit. Fee believes that Paul's point here is that the Philippians church, being one in Christ, is the direct result of the one spirit's presence in their individual and community life. This fits the present appeal for their unity in the face of opposition. Take note of this if you take note of nothing else. The spirit is the key to unity in the church. I'm going to say that again. The spirit is the key to unity in the church. Now, I'm not negating anything that we do here in church because as a body of believers, we should be spending time with one another. But I do add this warning. If we solely think that community groups or youth group or any other ministry is the number one factor of us growing in unity, we are sadly mistaken. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Now, I'm not saying that doing any of these things are fruitless and then therefore we should throw all these things away and not do them. But what I am saying is they only become fruitless when we depend on them and on ourselves to build unity instead of trusting and resting in the Holy Spirit to do so. So if we as a church want unity, we are to depend on the Holy Spirit. As Paul called the Philippian church to stand firm in the Spirit, church, let each of us rely on the Holy Spirit to make us one. It's going to be the Holy Spirit that puts away grumbling. It's going to be the Holy Spirit that doesn't think that each one of us is better than the person that's sitting next to us. And that's the essence of humility. Humility is us resting in the Spirit and not resting on ourselves. But as we continue, Paul not only calls the Philippian church to stand firm in the spirit. He also calls them to strive side by side with one mind. Now notice what he says here. It doesn't say strive against each other. He says strive side 
by side with one mind. And we can see this concept further expanded as we look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It says, so there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full of cord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count on others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then Paul continues with the Christ him. But as we look at chapter 2, and I'm not going to steal John's thunder, as I think he's doing that next week, we, we, we see a couple of things. Having one mind means we have the same love. Having one mind means we do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, we count others more significant than ourselves. And that's my hope, that that is what we do. When we look at a military unit, let's say, for example, or a business, there is a person within each one, let's say, for example, the military. There's a person within the platoon, which a platoon consists of 40 people. I'm going to listen to my wife here. Typically, Tara tells me when I bring up military stuff, there's only one person in the room that knows what I'm talking about, and, it, and it's me. <laughs> so I'm going to explain. So a platoon typically consists of 40 people, and we're going to go with an infantry platoon because that's what I know. Typically, your fourth squad is your weapon squad, and then you have other squads that might do point. They might go out and uh, do a recon mission for you, whatever else may be the case. Now, here's the interesting thing about the military when it comes to a mission. If you have a platoon, which consists of a platoon leader, who is the top guy, and you have a private, who is the lowest guy, both of them know exactly what consists of that operations order that they're about to get. An operations order is simply, this is our mission, this is what we need to do with our mission, and each person in this mission has a specific role. So the private, all the way up to the lieutenant, knows what everybody's role is in that mission. Purpose of that is, if somebody goes down, somebody else now can step up and fulfill that role. Notice what I said there. That's only if somebody goes down, is somebody else fulfilling that role. In order for that mission to be successful, everybody needs to stay in their lane and stay within the role that they are called to do. If not, there's no unit cohesion and there is no success. And that's the same for us. Each of us have different gifts. But even in the midst of different gifts, we all have to have the same mind. Every week I can't come here, especially with 10 kids, because this is very hard to prepare a sermon, and come that I'm going to do John's job. Someone else can't come in here and think that they're going to do Cheryl's job. Someone else can't come in and say, well, I'm going to do Vivian's job and I'm going to decorate the church. Someone else can't go into hospitality and say, I'm going to do Teddy's job. Each person has a role and for the church to fulfill their mission, 
Everybody needs to stay within their role with one mind. The minute that we do the opposite, so the minute that I push John aside and say, no, I'm preaching today, which would mean I'd have no preparation, which that almost happened to John, by the way, but that's another story for another time since I had a sick household all week. But the minute that we do that, we're no longer on mission for Jesus. We're on mission for self. And that is something that we can not do. And I'm going to put this out here because you've seen this in the private world and it's the same that reigns true here. You might be able to do the very thing that somebody else is doing better than them. But that doesn't mean you were called to do it. Nor does that mean that if you do do it, that the mission of proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ is going to go forth. So these are things that we have to keep in mind as we talk about being of one mind. So with one mind, what are the saints at Philippi to be focused on? Depending on interpretation, they are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, for the faith in the gospel, or the faith which is the gospel. It could also mean to strive side by side with one mind in faithfulness to the gospel. But in any event, the mission is the gospel. And we saw that all throughout what Paul brought up in the beginning of these chapters, or the chapter one rather, that the mission is the advancement of the gospel. With one mind, we're to strive side by side that the gospel might be advanced. Starting to lose where I'm putting my paperwork. And that's Paul's hope for the Philippian church, that they would understand it's about the advancement of the gospel. And his expectation of the church is that as one body, they would be about the business of advancing the gospel. And this is what we are called to do as citizens of heaven. Our job is to glorify the name of our king and advance his message of salvation. As one Bible scholar notes, for the faith of the gospel indicates that faith refers to the reason for the Philippians' common struggle and to that end toward which that struggle is directed. And when the church is faithful to proclaiming the message of our king, there will be struggle and there will be opposition. So when we're about the business of advancing the gospel in a world that's not in the business of advancing the gospel, they're going to notice something different about us. And when they notice something different about us, that there is going to be some opposition that comes with that. And this is why Paul encourages the church to not be frightened by their opponents. One scholar notes that the phrase, without being frightened in anything by your opponents, is the fulcrum between Paul's appeal for unity in the face of opposition and the ensuing mention of suffering in verses 29 through 30. Now, who exactly are these opponents mentioned in verse 28? Well, more than likely, these opponents are Roman citizens of Philippi who would have honored the emperor at every public meeting who were putting special pressure on the Philippian believers, whose allegiance obviously had been given to another king, namely Jesus, 
who himself had been executed at the hands of the empire. And verse 30 supports this view as Paul, in an attempt to encourage the church, reminds them of the same conflict that he had and which they saw that the Philippian church had witnessed. And this brings us back to Acts 16, which I'll read a little bit of it for you. Actually, I'm not because it's a ton of verses. So if we looked at Acts 16, 11 through 40, you're going to see what Paul's talking about and what the Philippian church witnessed, and that will be your homework. Because if not, I'd be reading for a long time. But if you remember, I'll give you a brief synopsis of that story. It's where Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown into prison. But an important verse to note there is Acts 16.21. And if you remember, that's where the owners of the slave girl who had the evil spirit commanded out of her by Paul complain that Silas and Paul, who were Jews, were advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So it's safe to say that the people of Philippi felt the same way about the church of Philippi. And you're going to see me make a distinction each time as I bring up the church of Philippi. Because the church of Philippi are different than the people of Philippi. The people of Philippi worship who? They worship Caesar. And as we'll see when we get to the Christ hymn in the people of Philippi's mind, there is only one Lord and one King, and that is Caesar. Yet the church of Philippi is saying that there is only one King and one Lord, and his name is Jesus. And at that name, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And this is a message that the people of Philippi do not advocate. Thus the opposition and thus the ensuing suffering. Pastor John has noted this several times and I'll reiterate it again. The Philippian church lived in an empire among a people who held Caesar as king. We do not hold Caesar as king, nor did the Philippi church. Thus, again, their opposition. But in spite of this opposition, Paul reminds the church at Philippi to not be frightened in anything by their opponents. And in that, he also shows their need for unity. If you're going to face this opposition, you cannot face this opposition alone. You as a church, as this opposition comes towards you, are going to have to be one in spirit. You are going to have to strive side by side with one mind. And this is one of the things that concerns me with the American church. We're a church that I would say more or less holds to individualism. So it's not really about unity. It's not really about being one body. It's about my personal faith. And that's something that's probably been taught for years. It's kind of easy to get away with that in the culture that we live in because we currently do not live in a culture that is hostile to what we are doing. And what I mean by that is nobody is coming in right now breaking down the doors to ensure that we're not doing the very thing that we're called to do advance the gospel, 
and proclaim the name of Jesus. I'm going to put in a little plug here back to Seski. Because men, I think we're more guilty of this than the women are. We love to, after church, go to our little coves and hide and not to get together and fellowship and build that unity. And thus the call, especially for us men, to get together and become one body. We, we cannot wait because I'm going to be a guessing man right now. I'm saying probably near the end of my life, maybe even before that, the church will probably see persecution. Because as we look at our world, we continue to see the antithesis of what we believe and preach. In fact, they've gone beyond Caesar as God. Our culture will hold that you and your seat essentially are God, and therefore you hold the destiny and key to your future. No imaginary God does in their mind. So when we now say the contrary, more and more we're going to start witnessing hostility to what we believe. And part of that preparation is, yes, knowing the word, relying on the Holy Spirit, and trusting that God is going to bring us through. But another piece of that is being the one body that we are called to be, that we might face the opposition as one and advance the gospel as we are called to do. Suffering individually is terrible, it's frustrating, and it's hard. I experienced that this morning, and it's a whole different type of suffering, and Brian Post will appreciate this. Love to get on my bike in the morning. I have a, it hooked up to a trainer, and I ride, and I can ride with anybody in the world. So when I'm riding with the group, that ride is very easy. Right? I can draft. I can do what I need to do. Sometimes I could be up front and help other riders, and sometimes other riders can help me. Once I lose that group, that ride becomes very difficult. So even if I'm outside, if it's windy outside, if I'm climbing up a hill, if I don't have a draft going with me, and now I'm by myself, I'm getting every bit of that wind as I ride. Whereas if I'm with the group and we're as one, it's a whole lot easier to face when I'm riding in that wind. Saints, if and when, and I'm going more with when, we experience persecution. It's going to be a lot easier to face as one body than it will be for us to go out on our own and try to face it on our own. And some of us experience that, let's be honest, recently as we tried to deal with COVID on our own. We got to experience that life outside the body is hard. When I don't have contact with the very people that I see every week, or I'm not having any physical interaction with the people I potentially see every week or several times a week because of community groups or different things, it became hard to maintain that Christian walk. And this is why I encourage you, let us be working on unity now and not waiting to suffering or opposition. Comes. 
So what is some of the opposition that the people of Philippi would have faced? Well, they had a business in the marketplace. The citizens of Philippi would have purposely avoided their business, causing economic hardship for the people of the church at Philippi. Like Paul, they could have potentially faced beatings and imprisonment. The worst thing that they could obviously have faced is death, since they were claiming allegiance to Christ and not Caesar. So just imagine going through economic hardship on your own, going through imprisonment and beatings on your own, facing death on your own. No, we need to be one body so that we might stay strong and not leave the faith, but continue to proclaim the faith even in the midst of opposition. And as we can see, despite all this, Paul encourages them not to be frightened, but he then adds, this is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, what does this verse mean? Because it's definitely a confusing verse. And I think 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 8 kind of gives us a little flavor. So I'm going to turn there. It says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. As the Philippian church continues to be faithful to the gospel and advances the gospel in spite of opposition from their opponents, it is a sign that those who oppose the gospel will be judged by God and suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, while those who are faithful will be saved and that from God. Our faithfulness in the midst of suffering will be rewarded. And that's good news. Amen is that good news. One scholar notes that the true grounds for the Philippians' encouragement was the profound conviction that nothing in their experience took place outside of God's superintendence. As Pastor John noted, I believe, two weeks ago, just as Paul could continue in his ministry knowing that everything that was happening to him was from God, Paul is encouraging the Philippian church to do the same. Their salvation will be from God. Paul closes chapter one by addressing the suffering that the Philippian church is enduring for their faith of the gospel, and he notes several important things. First, just as their faith has been granted to them for the sake of Christ, so has their suffering. And that's just a hard word or a hard pill to swallow. Just think about that. The very faith that you have been given has been given to you by God, to which many of us rejoice and say, amen. But now a plot twist. The very suffering that you experience is from God. To which many of us say, no, <laughs> I don't want that. I think John even brought that up 
last week or again the week before. I missed last week, unfortunately, because of sick children. But yeah, hardship and suffering is not something that we typically raise our hands and say, hey, sign me up for that. Now, before I continue, I do want to make a distinction between personal suffering and the corporate suffering that we observe here. One scholar notes that the church at Philippi suffered because of their identification with Christ in a world that is openly hostile to God. Ill treatment came in response to the Philippians' Christian way of life, not just from the proclamation of the gospel. And that's why I keep saying, do not be surprised when suffering comes our way, because we are to look and be different. So our ill treatment won't only come from us proclaiming Christ and him crucified. It'll also come because of our different way of life. We don't think like the world does, nor do we do the things that the world does. And they do not like that. They do not like the difference. Due to the fact that the Philippians were faithful in proclaiming the gospel in the midst of their opponents, God showed them favor and granted them worthy to suffer for his sake. And again, some of us would say, please don't show me favor like that. Show me other kind of favor. Give me nice things. Isn't that what you said last week? I'd rather take nice things. Give me a steak dinner and, you know, nice relaxing day and this beautiful sunlight that we have here. But God grants them worthy to suffer for his sake. And as we read this, this should remind us of Acts 5.41, where after the apostles had been arrested and then freed, rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This should also remind us of the upside-down kingdom in which we are residents. Hellerman said the following. Paul saw suffering as an active rather than passive experience. This is illustrated by the Greek phrase used here. The ancients viewed affliction as something to overcome. To Greek ears, any claim about suffering as something good or as a gift was alien. And for us, like I noted, we don't look at it as something to overcome. We look at it as something to be avoided at all costs. Yet we know from Romans 5.3, Paul says this, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. The people of God do not try to overcome suffering or avoid it, but we rejoice in it knowing that God uses it for our good and for his glory. And as we hear this today, I pray that it changes our perspective on suffering. Now, I know I mentioned this earlier, but the American church is not a church, at least in my opinion, that has experienced suffering. But my prayer is, is that when it comes, we will stand together as one, rejoicing that God has found us worthy to suffer for his sake. Just think about that. As we experience suffering, we'll be able to say that God has granted it to us 
and has found us worthy that we might suffer for his sake. Let us not seek to avoid the suffering, but as our world becomes more and more hostile to the gospel, prayerfully observes that we as citizens of heaven live differently than the citizens of this world. And because of that, seek to silence us and turn us from our king. We would stand firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not be frightened by anything that our opponents can potentially do to us. You know, the big thing nowadays is good old cancel culture. Um, We should not be worried that our Facebook page can potentially be taken down because we proclaim Christ. Our nice little YouTube, hello out there, page can be taken down or anything else. Our job is to remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what our opponents try to do to us. Lastly, we observe that Paul is more than qualified to give the church at Philippi this encouragement because they witnessed him go through persecution and suffering when he was at Philippi. And based on this letter, they are hearing that he is still enduring that same suffering. And despite this suffering, what does Paul continue to do? He continues to preach Christ and him crucified. And again, he expects the church at Philippi to do the same. And just as they have partnered with him and supported his ministry during his suffering, they must exemplify unity and partner with one another in order that even in the midst of opposition, they would continue to advance the gospel. And church, may we do the same. We have a cloud of witnesses that have gone before us who have suffered. So we know that this suffering that we will potentially endure is not uncommon to the church. The question is, when it comes, will we be a church that is unified, ready to take on that opposition, not frightened by anything that our opponents might do to us? Let's pray. Father, we again just thank you for your word. Lord, give us strength. Um, All of us in here can attest to the fact that when it comes to suffering, Lord, it is not something that we openly embrace or want to endure. Lord, our mindset more and more is to either avoid it or as quickly as possible overcome it. But your word assures us, Lord, that suffering shows that we are worthy for Christ's sake, to endure these things. So, Lord, help us to be one body, that when these things come, we might be able to continue to proclaim the gospel. We might continue to be one church. We might be seen as a church that strives side by side with one mind and that stands firm in one spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.